You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Back in the day, like in the 1860s and 1870s, poetry was a lot like the hip-hop industry is today. Now, I'm not just making that comparison, because poets and rappers both kick rhymes. That's obvious. I'm talking about beef. I'm talking about pop culture dominance. I'm talking about shady publishing deals, having millionaire moguls behind those deals, and I'm talking about the Bay Area getting no love from the East Coast. Today's episode is about Ina Coolbrith. She was the hottest female MC, oops, I mean poet, in the Bay Area back in the day. Aletta George recently wrote a book about her called Ina Coolbrith, the bittersweet song of California's first poet laureate. But before we get into the beef, here's Aletta explaining how poetry used to be like TV, radio, and the tabloids all rolled into one. Most every daily newspaper had a poem printed on the front page, and poetry ran through the culture. It was woven through, it was part of the culture. People loved poetry. Poets were elevated, but like they were on, put on pedestals. This love of poetry wasn't only true for the fancy, educated, richie rich people. Just like how you still see regular folks kicking freestyles while they're waiting for the BART or you see kids who want to be the next Kendrick selling their mixtapes on the street. All kinds of people want to get in the poetry game. Here's Aletta again, talking about the dreamers who came out to California chasing the gold rush. A lot of the miners wrote their own poetry and recited poetry to each other and wrote really bad poetry that was published in local newspapers. There were what you could call a poetry slam because that's what they were, where editors would uh, try and get the audience in a saloon to like their poem better, and they would recite poems that, off the top of their head, usually funny ones. So poetry was really woven into the culture, and people loved poetry, and people loved poets, and could recite poetry. Everybody could recite a poem. In the first few decades after the big gold rush in 1849, the Bay Area was just starting to emerge as a real metropolitan area. And the people living here wanted the world to know that this place had culture. That it wasn't just a Wild West-type saloon town full of crazy gold miners and drunken sailors anymore. At the time, all the most famous American poets were pretty much from New York or New England, so in 1866, this writer named Bret Hart, yes, that's the same Bret Hart that the Oakland Middle School is named after, he decided to put together the first anthology, which is basically like a mixtape of California poets. Bret Hart's poetry collection, which was called Outcroppings, was published by the guy who started the Books, Inc. bookstore, which is still in business after all these years. When Outcroppings dropped, hundreds of people waited in line to get a look, like it was the new Star Wars movie or something. This book didn't just put the Bay Area poetry scene on the map. It also sparked tons of beef. Some reviewers loved it, but there was also so much hater aid. One critic called it, quote, hogwash, ladle from the slop bucket, unquote. Ouch. But pretty much everyone agreed on one thing. The three poems that Ina Coolbrith contributed to Outcroppings 
were some of the anthology's best work. Even Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who was the most famous poet at the time, put some respect on her name, saying that Ina Coolbrith possessed, quote, a true instinct for versification. So, all of a sudden, Ina Coolbrith is hot, and not just because of her poetry. She was a strong, outspoken woman, and she was also physically beautiful. She was friends with both Mark Twain, who, of course, would go on to become one of the most celebrated writers of all time, and Bret Hart. And Twain and Hart reportedly got into a screaming match over Ina's affections, but I'll come back to that later. The point is that Ina Kulbrith was the Bay Area's first literary it girl, and she loved the attention. Yeah, she was a teaser. She was a teaser. Absolutely. She was a flirt. At this point, you might be wondering, what does Ina Kulbrith have to do with East Bay history? Well, how about this? She was the very first librarian at Oakland's first public library, and she used to organize events there with her famous friends like the naturalist John Muir. Oh, and while she was there, she encouraged and inspired two of Oakland's most famous residents while they were still impressionable young children, the author Jack London and the world-famous dancer Isadora Duncan. Or how about this? You know Joaquin Miller Park up in the Oakland Hills? The dude who that's named after, Joaquin Miller, before he met Ina Coolbrith, his name, his birth name, was Cincinnatus Heiner Miller. That's right. Ina Coolbrith convinced this poet to rename himself Joaquin Miller. And as Oaklanders, I think we should be grateful because <laughs> Cincinnatus Heiner Park just doesn't have the same ring to it. Okay, now, I don't want to give away the whole story just yet, because Ina Coolbrith's life had a lot of ups, and unfortunately, a lot of very tragic downs, too. So let's take a step back to the beginning, because just like how all the best rappers have captivating origin stories about how they started at the bottom before they climbed to the top, Ina Coolbrith's childhood was totally crazy. You may have heard of the Latter-day Saints, aka Mormons. It's a religion with about 15 million members. Their church in Oakland is that giant white temple up in the hills? Yeah, Ina Coolbrith's father was the brother of Joseph Smith, the guy who started that religion. And when Ina's dad died, her mom became one of Joseph Smith's plural wives. That's right, the founder of Mormonism was Ina Coolbrith's stepdad. Well, one of them. Because after Joseph Smith was murdered by an anti-Mormon mob in Nauvoo, Illinois, Ina's mom married again. This time, she became one of the plural wives of Joseph Smith's cousin. Understandably, Aletta says that Ina didn't talk much about her life as a young girl in the Midwest. Ina never wrote about her early years, and, and particularly the, the violence that she would have experienced in Nauvoo, Illinois, because the anti-Mormon mobs basically pushed the Mormons out at gunpoint with cannons. Throughout her life, Ina Coolbrith was never racist or homophobic, even though it was totally normal to be prejudiced during that era. Her best friend was a gay man, and she was friends with people of all races. When I asked Aletta about why Ina was so woke before that was really a thing, she speculated that maybe it was because of the violent persecution she saw her family suffer as a young girl. There are a few other things that happened during her girlhood that I think may have also helped. 
When the rest of the Mormons decided to head off to Utah, Ina's mom decided to join a wagon train headed for California instead. While they were crossing the Nevada desert, her group got lost, and they were almost out of water, when a Shoshone Indian offered to guide the party to the Humboldt River. Ina would go on to be close friends with Native Americans throughout her entire life. She would even help raise a Native American girl who had been abandoned by her father. So maybe this experience made a lasting impression on her. Another man of color who helped Ina's wagon train was the African-American mountain man, James Beckworth. In fact, Ina and her sister were riding on James Beckworth's horse when the young girls first laid eyes on the Golden State. When the family was coming to California, they were on the eastern side of the Sierras and knew they had to cross over. And James Beckworth, the mountain man, came to them and said, I just cleared this pass, and it's the shortest pass and the lowest pass across the Sierras, and I'll take you across myself. So uh, they followed him, and, at the, and he befriended the children, called Ina his little princess, and she actually thought he was one of the most handsome men she had ever seen in her life. Ina was 10 years old when her family made this grueling multi-month journey from the Midwest to California. And one of the ways she entertained herself during the downtime was by reading poetry to her dolls. These presentations, Under the Stars of the Old West, they were her first poetry readings. When Ina's family eventually got to Los Angeles in 1851, she brought her love of language with her. At the time, Los Angeles wasn't a city. It was only a dusty little pueblo. Just to give you a sense of the vibe, here's a description from a lettuce book about what people used to do for fun. Quote, Carrera El Gallo was a popular form of entertainment that required participants to grease the neck of a rooster, bury it up to its neck on the side of the road, and grab it while riding by at full speed. End quote. During this time while her family was living in SoCal, Ina got to go to Los Angeles' very first school for two years, and these were the only two years of formal schooling she would ever receive. At the age of 15, she wrote a poem for a school project that the principal sent to the local newspaper, which printed it. This was her first published poem, and many more soon followed. Something else that soon followed was her first and only marriage, and her first and only child. Unlike her love of poetry, neither her marriage nor her baby boy were long for this world. Ina was still only 17 when she got married, and the details around this time of her life are a little fuzzy. One thing, however, is certain. Her husband, Robert Carsley, was an abusive asshole. He beat Ina and even tried to shoot her. Here's a letter talking about how he reacted when Ina decided to divorce his sorry ass. After she lost her child and her husband was violent and tried to kill her and she survived it. And after her husband, who whose hand was shot off in the altercation when he tried to kill her by Ina's stepfather, her husband, who was served divorce papers, came over to the house and with the bloody stump of a hand continued to scream call her call her bitch and whore and accuse her of infidelity in you know in the pueblo and for everybody to hear so she by the time she left divorced her husband and left los angeles 
uh, she was ready to try and start again and not tell anybody about any of those things. Like many people since, at the age of 21, Ina Coolbrith decided to move up to the Bay Area to make a fresh start. Now, she spent a few years in San Francisco before heading over to Oakland, and I don't want to dwell on this period for too long, because after all, this podcast is called East Bay Yesterday, not West Bay Yesterday, but there are a few little stories from this era that are too good to pass up. First of all, I should say that she made a name for herself pretty quick. The Californian, one of the most important magazines at the time, started publishing her poetry as soon as she was able to convince the editor that she hadn't plagiarized her work. And the Overland Monthly, which was basically like the West Coast equivalent to the Atlantic Monthly, started publishing Ina from its very first issue onward. After a while, a few East Coast magazines even started publishing her alongside the big dogs like Walt Whitman and Henry James. Ina's best friends during this time were the most famous writers and poets in California. These were people like Charles Warren Stoddard, Bret Hart, and a fellow named Samuel Clemens, who you may know better from his pen name, Mark Twain. In her book, Aletta shares some very tantalizing stories about all the rumors and innuendo surrounding the relationship between Ina and Mark Twain. But sadly, there's not a lot of evidence left, possibly because their letters to each other burned up during the fire after the great earthquake of 1906. Another reason it sounds like nobody wanted to talk about this at the time is because their romance was possibly part of a love triangle between friends gone sour. The rumor is, and the rumor that has persisted through the years, is that Twain was interested in Ina and was either seeing her in her parlor or flirting with her or pursuing her in some way. And Bret Hart, who was married, discouraged him from pursuing her and that Hart and, and Twain got into it in the offices in a public way so people overheard their argument. And uh, Clemens Clemens slash Twain basically told Hart, you know, you don't have any standing to say what I do with Ina Coolbrith because you're a married man and you have children. So there apparently was a war of words that other people heard uh, between Hart and and Twain. Even though poetry was really popular at the time, it still didn't pay very well. Shocking, I know, right? So, in order to bring in a little more loot, Ina also wrote a column for the Californian under a different name. In one of her columns, she wrote about how when she was riding the streetcar, she saw a rich guy in fancy clothes yelling at the driver for stopping to pick up a crippled veteran wearing a tattered Union Army coat. Remember, this is around the time that the Union North had just defeated the Rebel South in the Civil War. Anyway, when the soldier climbs onto the streetcar and sits next to the rich dude, the rich guy pulls his own jacket away so it won't rub up against the wounded soldier. I'm going to read Anna's response because it's such a good example of how she was way ahead of her time in terms of putting lame bros on blast. Here's Ina, quote, Why, you atrocious little jackanapes! Don't you know that one square inch of that old blue coat, worn and faded as it is, is worth ten times more, aye, a thousand times more, than your whole suit, with a dummy which it contains thrown in? Unquote, and mic drop.
Sadly, Ina's decision to take a job at the Oakland Library was the result of a tragedy. Her sister Agnes died, leaving Ina her two children to raise. And Ina's mom got sick, too. Really sick. Oh, and her friend Joaquin Miller, he had a 14-year-old daughter who had been living with her recently deceased Native American mother. Good old Joaquin Miller decided to drop his daughter off on Ina's doorstep so he could go to Europe and become a famous poet. So, all of a sudden, Ina had four extra mouths to feed, and poetry wasn't exactly paying the bills. Here's Aletta again, talking about how this transition to the Oakland Library was really rough on Ina. She, from the very start, called it her inferno. And one of the reasons, I mean, the reason that she did was because she was taken from the things that had given her relief, poetry and nature, and was put into a situation where she was working 14 hours a day, six days a week, inside of a building. And, uh, and it was tough on her. I have to admit, reading this part of Ina's story is frustrating. Remember, all her male friends are going to Europe and becoming these famous, world-renowned poets. This was Ina's plan, too. But then she got stuck taking care of a family and working a job that had such long hours that she barely had time to write. But when I was talking with Aletta, she gave me a better perspective on this. There were times when I was writing this book, especially when I was researching this book, when I would look at her story through the eyes of my culture and my time, and I would be a little frustrated with her. I'd be like, do something. Come on, get, get going, you know, fight back. But then, I, but then I think I was able to look a little bit more at her story uh, from her viewpoint, from in the context of her times. And when, when she became a breadwinner for her family, it really was love of her mother. It wasn't a sense of duty as a woman, as I, I was, just, it, that was a powerful move for one. I mean, for one thing, women didn't become, women weren't breadwinners of families. You know, she, she was the person who went out and brought home the bacon, so to speak, for a family of five. Another important thing to note, Ina could have married again and found a man to take care of her family, but she didn't. She maintained her independence, despite some of her best friend's efforts to set her up with a hubby. So, remember how I said that Ina used to bring John Muir to the library to give lectures? In case you don't know, John Muir was the founder of the Sierra Club and is known as the father of America's national parks for helping promote the concept that we need to protect places like Yosemite. Anyway, him and Ina were good buddies, and, well, I'll let Aletta tell the story. John Muir thought that it was a shame that Ina wasn't married, and of course nobody knew that Ina had already married and tried that. And so John Muir tried to set her up with somebody, tried to play matchmaker. And uh, so John Muir set up Ina with a school teacher, a guy named Mr. He was Mr. Brown. And so Ina didn't want to marry, and she didn't want anything to do with Mr. Brown. So she did, she rhymed Muir, and that's what she would call, if, whenever she would stand up to somebody, she would, she would write a poem that was in a funny vein, and, and she rhymed John Muir and told him she didn't want anything to do with Mr. Brown. And the poem was never published, and it's uh, in Ina's scrapbooks at the Oakland Public Library in the Oakland History Room, and it's a hilarious poem. In fact, 
The poem is so hilarious that I asked Aletta to read it out loud, and she did. But before I play that tape, just keep in mind that humor was a little bit different 130 years ago. To John Muir, self-explanatory, and it starts, Up from her catalog she sprung, and this the song she wildly sung. Oh, Johnny Muir, oh, Johnny Muir, how could you leave your mountains pure, your meadow breaths and forests free, a wily matchmaker to be? So that's the first stanza, and it's a very long poem, but I'll skip to the end. The earth may quake, the heaven fall, the ocean fail, or thought appalling, I may never wet it all, but this is certain, write it down. Or if you smile, or if you frown, I do not want your Mr. Brown. (laughs) So yeah, she was single, but she was not ready to mingle. She would end up staying at Oakland's first public library for about two decades, until 1893, and her impact on the blossoming cultural scene in this rapidly growing industrial waterfront town called Oakland was immeasurable. When Ina was working as librarian at the Oakland Public Library, she was a celebrity. She had already published poetry in the Overland Monthly, which was the West's first acclaimed literary magazine. So she was a celebrity working in Oakland at the library. And then she published a book which sold out in two weeks. And she was still publishing poetry in magazines, occasionally in the Overland Monthly and some on the East Coast. And one thing that I like to think about Oakland is that throughout her life, when Ina first came to San Francisco and she was a colleague of Bret Hart and Mark Twain and Charles Warren Stoddard and Joaquin Miller, people remembered her parlor. They remembered going to her parlor as a place to talk about words, to talk about art, to talk about literature. And then later in life, she started the Ina Kulbus, or she didn't start the Ina Kulbus circle, but they met in her home on Russian Hill. And people remembered her parlor as this significant place where literature was elevated and revered. And uh, when she was in Oakland, because she worked so many hours, I like to think of the Oakland Public Library as her parlor. That's where she held her parlor. One of the many people that Ina influenced during her time as an Oakland librarian was a scrawny little ragamuffin named Jack London. London's family had just moved back to Oakland from San Mateo County after their farm had failed. Whenever 10-year-old Jack wasn't working, he was spending his free time reading everything he could get his hands on. At the time, the library's policy was not to loan out books to kids this young. You were supposed to be at least 14, but Ina decided to bend the rules for this curious kid. Here's a letter telling the story of the first time Jack London met Ina at the Oakland Library. The book he was checking out was about the conquistador Francisco Pizarro's colonization of Peru. The thing that's significant to me is that she didn't discourage him by saying, you're only 10 years old, where is your mother? Why did you come in here without your parents? 
And, you know, this is a pretty big book for you. Do you really think that you're going to be able to handle a book like this? She wasn't condescending to him. She didn't lecture him about anything. She stamped the book. She handed it to him and she told him that he had made a fine choice. But years and years and years later, he wrote to her and told her that he remembered the moment and he remembered it for the rest of his life because she made him feel proud because she was the very first person in his life who told him that he had made a fine choice and um, elevated his confidence as a reader, as a reader, as somebody interested in literature at all. Of course, Jack London would go on to become the most famous American writer of his era. Here's what he wrote in that letter to Ina that Aletta just mentioned. Quote, If only you knew how proud your words made me. You were a goddess to me. It's important to remember that when Jack first met Ina, he was the new kid in town. He was poor, and he was bullied at school for being a bookworm. I was a huge bookworm when I was a little kid, too, and I spent a lot of time hanging out in the basement of my local library. Speaking as someone who got a lot of encouragement from librarians, it's easy to imagine that Jack London's life could have turned out totally different if Ina hadn't let him have access to books, if she hadn't been there. Aletta has a theory about why Ina risked her job to let this little kid check out books. She was the head librarian. She's supposed to follow the rules, but she didn't. She chose not to follow the rules with this boy who she didn't know he was going to become the first author to, to earn a million dollars. This was just a boy. And I think I was thinking about why, why did she do that? And then I realized, oh, she was also 10 years old when she came to California on the Overland Trail and discovered Lord Byron and Shakespeare. And she read her first fiction book, which she said she read uh, surreptitiously by moonlight. And it was a book called The Red Revenge. But she felt like she had to hide to read that book because it was some, somewhat racy. <laughs> you know, so, and, and then I think also she had some, su some support uh, from some people when she was young. And mm -hmm. so I think that she saw herself in Jack London and the other children that came into the library like Isadora Duncan. Another influential writer that Ina helped was Mary Austin. Mary Austin would go on to become a well-known author of early environmentalist fiction and nonfiction, but when she went to Ina for guidance, she hadn't published anything yet. Ina helped her with the manuscript, introduced her to an editor, and a literary career was launched. The point is that Ina's legacy is much, much greater than just her own collections of poems. Here's a letter on why she thinks Ina deserves to be remembered. What I feel is kind of missing in thinking about Ina Coolbrith and her legacy is the fact that when she came to California, there, there really wasn't much in the way of literature. And she, throughout her life, there were two things that she believed in above all else. And that was poetry and California. She believed California was a muse for writers. She was, she was an early pioneer in believing in literature. She was a ambassador for literature in California, and she believed in California as a muse. 
After Ina left the Oakland Library, one of the ways she made money was by giving lectures on the history of California literature. She was reportedly almost finished with turning this lecture into a book when the Great Earthquake of 1906 struck the Bay Area. At the time, Ina was living in San Francisco. The California History Manuscript, along with pretty much everything else she owned, was destroyed in the fire. The final years of Ina's life were just as interesting as her early years. She moved to Greenwich Village in New York and was part of the poetry scene there during the Roaring Twenties. Ansel Adams, perhaps the most famous photographer in American history, took her portrait. She met up with Mark Twain again at a party, and of course she flirted with him. She published another book of poetry too, and on Leap Day, February 29th, 1928, Ina Coolbrith died. 10 years before her 87th birthday. I don't want to end on a sad note, so I'll share one more story, and a poem. 1871 was the first year that the University of California allowed women to enroll. The Berkeley campus was under construction at the time, and the university was still located in its original location, downtown Oakland, near the corner of 14th and Franklin. Even though Ina only had two years of formal schooling herself, she was a big supporter of education for women, and she wrote the commencement ode for the graduating class that year. Her commencement speech took the form of a poem, a poem about her favorite muse, California. Here's Aletta reading a poem that, well, Anybody who's ever watched a sunset over the bay should be able to appreciate this one. Enjoy. For California is a poem, the land of romance, of mystery, of worship, of beauty, and of song. It chants from her snow-crested, cloud-bannered mountain ranges. It hymns through her forests of sky-reaching pine and sequoia. It ripples in her flowered and fruited valleys. It thunders from her fountains pouring, as it were, from the very waters above the firmament. It anthems from the deeps of the mightiest ocean of the world and echoes ever in the syllables of her own strangely beautiful name, California. I'm going to skip down. Um, the thin thread of mist creep white across the Sausalito Hills till the day darkened down the ocean rim. The sunset purple slipped from Tamalpais and bay and sky were bright with sudden stars. For this episode, I want to thank Aletta George, the Ina Coolbrith Circle, and Laurel Books, who hosted the event where I first discovered Aletta's wonderful book. As always, I want to give a shout out to everybody who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Cultural Heritage Survey, the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. Don't forget to check out the East Bay Yesterday website to see photos for the story, and to follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Music for today's episode came from Poddington Bear, Jazar, Colin Carr, and the Sochislahuaca Trio. And please, please, please subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a comment or a rating. 
It means a lot. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. For East Bay Yesterday, I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Thanks for listening. Oh, and just a quick P.S. If you are thinking about leaving a comment on iTunes or social media about what you think of the podcast, please don't call it this. Hogwash, ladle from the slop bucket. A comment like this would be much more appreciated. If only you knew how proud your words made me, you were a goddess to me.